0: save some real money on Princeton University Press Books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, I'm CP Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Jill Paul about her most recent novel, The Collector's Daughter. The collector of the title is the Earl of Carnarvon, who financed Howard Carter's expedition to Egypt's Valley of the Kings in 1922. In fact, Lord Carnarvon had funded several of Carter's archaeological expeditions, but this one resulted in the discovery of Totankhamen's tomb. What is less well known is that Lady Evelyn Herbert, Lord Carnarvon's daughter, accompanied him on his trip to investigate Carter's find and was the first modern person to enter the tomb. The consequences of the find were long lasting, for science, of course, and for the public's appreciation of ancient Egyptian culture, but also for the lives of those involved. At the moment when we meet her, Lady Evelyn, known as Eve, is at a much later yet still pivotal point in time. London, July 1972. Eve opened her eyes a fraction and saw an old man sitting a couple of feet away. He had silver hair that receded on either side of his brow, leaving a widow's peak in the center. She shut her eyes again and watched the fuzzy shapes that glimmered and danced in her visual field. The next time she opened her eyelids, the man was still there. Behind him, she could make out a white room and the rectangular shape of a window. You're back, he said with a choking sound, as if he was overcome. She tried to focus on him, blinking against the light. His eyes were red-rimmed behind wire spectacles. He was wearing a suit and tie. She looked down and realized he was holding her hand. At least, the hand was attached to an arm that led up to her body, so it must be hers. But she couldn't feel it, couldn't make the fingers respond. That wasn't good. And now, please join me in welcoming Jill Paul. Jill, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. You have written, by my count, 12 historical novels, as well as a number of non-fiction books. My colleague, uh, Jennifer Yeremieva, interviewed you for New Books in Russia and Eurasia about your novel, The Lost Daughter, a reimagining of the fate of Grand Duchess Maria Romanova. Our listeners can hear that by searching on newbooksnetwork.com. And you and I did a written Q&A on my blog last year to mark the appearance of Jackie and Maria, your novel about Jackie Kennedy and Maria Callas, whose lives connected through Aristotle and Nassus. These are fairly disparate subjects. How do you decide where to focus your energies? <laughs> yes, I do tend to
1: jump around a bit. But these are all subjects that have fascinated me for a long time. Some of them were teenage obsessions like the Romanoffs. And I've written about the Titanic as well, about which I was obsessed as a teenager. Um, I just, so I just choose subjects that fascinate me. And I'm looking for a strong emotional story with complex characters, usually women in the central roles. And uh, you get a kind of, I don't know if you find this, you get a kind of tingly feeling when you hit on an idea that you think is going to work. That's the best way I can describe it. But I tend to, at the moment, I will pitch my editor in New York with a few ideas, four or five ideas sometimes. And uh, she'll go, no, no. Oh, maybe that one. Oh, no, that's the one. And I'll almost almost always follow her guidance because she knows the market better than me. So, yeah, that's the process of choosing. I do get um, readers sometimes emailing me or contacting me on social media with ideas, and I'm so grateful for that. It's fantastic. And if I do ever um, end up writing a novel from somebody else's idea, then I promise I will dedicate it to them.
0: Well, I hope that our listeners will take that as a challenge. (laughs) The challenge, yes. (laughs) You also seem to prefer writing about women who were real historical figures rather than invented characters. Do historical characters offer advantages that fictional ones don't? Uh, I don't know. There's, there's difficulties. and there's, I mean, there are
1: advantages in the marketing, I suppose, in that people have an idea of what story they're going to get, um, what it might be about. But I started writing biographical fiction, biographical historical fiction, I suppose you'd call it, after I read Paula McLean's The Paris Wife back in 2011, I think it came out, about Hadley Richardson, Ernest Hemingway's first wife. And I loved that so much. The fact that you could step inside the head of a 20th century woman like that, early 20th century, and um, and tell us what she was thinking and feeling about her marriage to this man who was struggling to become a writer. I thought, oh, I want to do that. <laughs> but what, I loved that idea of taking women who were less known in their era and bringing them to life, that they might have been marginalised by historians, or on the other hand, women who were famous but I feel were misrepresented by their biographers. As, as certainly I feel that about Maria Callas. So that's the kind of novel I wanted to read. So that's why I decided to write them. But I suppose when you're when it's you know if you're watching a movie and it says based on a true story, there's a kind of free song about it that you know that you're actually learning something that really happened. I mean history has. Stories were incredible that you couldn't, you know, as you know, you couldn't make them up in a novel or people wouldn't believe you, you know. They just so that kind of based on a true story does give it a bit more immediacy, I suppose.
0: That's a good point. Um, This next question comes from my next door neighbor uh, who loved Jackie and Maria. Uh, She wondered how you construct dialogue for historical characters, given that most such exchanges are not recorded.
1: That's a terrific question, and it's true, you know, biographical novelists are making up all the dialogue. Nobody recorded what was happening in private conversations behind closed doors. But you want to try and get a sense of what the way that your characters spoke. So if there are any recorded interviews that you can listen to online, that's great. Or read letters that they wrote, or, you know, if they've written an autobiography or a memoir, then that helps you to imagine their voice. But in the case of Jackie and Maria, I didn't have um, any memoirs. There were letters and a few very stilted interviews where they, weren't, they were very guarded, both of them. Um, so the next thing I would do is take into account the era in which they lived. You know, the, the, This is the 1950s, the 1960s, so I wanted you know, to find out the way people did speak then and the kind of slang they used. I, I like to read novels that were written in that period not novels about that period that were written later, but ones that were actually written in that period set then. So things like Mary McCarthy's The Group was very useful, or Rona Jaffe's The Best of Everything, um, just for the way that people were speaking. And then you need to take into account what class they were, um, what station in society, whether they would be slangy. But both Jackie and Maria were very well-spoken and articulate, and they didn't give much away. <laughs> that's that was my approach to trying to write their dialogue um, and you know your, your neighbour's absolutely right it is made up but just trying to sound um, plausible emotionally honest yeah
0: and what led you to the story of Evelyn Herbert who's called Eve throughout most of your novel oh she's a classic case of somebody that's been
1: marginalised by the history books and um, it was one I've always been fascinated by Tutankhamun. that's one of my, my um, teenage passions really When you look at the photos outside the tomb in November 1922, there's the two men, Howard Carter and Lord Carnarvon, and there's this little woman with dark hair, much shorter than them. And uh, she's there, but she's hardly mentioned in the books, just in passing. And I thought You know who is she? First of all, well, she's Lord Carnarvon's daughter, and what was she doing there? You know, she's she's a very well brought up woman who who her mother was trying to make an amazing marriage for her to somebody you know who deserved an earl's daughter, and um, there she is in the desert getting dirty with these men. So I just wanted to find out about her and um, see what her life was like and how being part of this you know huge globe you know discovery the news of which went global, how that affected her life. And, you know, there were certain things. There's been a TV drama about her over here, um, um, in which I don't know if it made it to the States, in which she was portrayed having an affair with Howard Carter. And I thought, well, that's ridiculous. She, She had met him when she was about six years old and he was coming to sell antiquities to her father. He was 27 years older than her. And he was a confirmed bachelor. It's not like he was some lady killer type. So I thought that's got to be wrong. So I really wanted to explore Eve's life. I call her Eve and um, find out what it was really like and particularly how being part of this discovery affected her life.
0: You mentioned in the questions at the end of the book that you wrote seven openings for this novel. I'm very impressed, by the way, (laughs) (laughs) just by that. Um, So the question how would another opening have changed the book is fascinating in itself, but it seems to me that any of the others would have led to quite a different story. So what made you settle on this one? Oh gosh.
1: Do you know, this is my 10th or 11th novel, I can't remember, but um, you'd think I'd know how to do it by now, but some novels just present more difficulties than others and you can never see it coming. My initial vision was to look at Eve's life from childhood to old age and show how it had been affected by this being part of the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb. So in my first draft, I wrote it chronologically from when she met Howard Carter at the age of six right through to her, to her 70s. And um, my agent really didn't like that. She said the beginning's too slow and she was right. My agent doesn't tend to like anything that's told from a child's voice, which is quite a difficult thing to write and keep it interesting for adults. So then I started, I tried again, starting with Eve as a teenager and I tried with different forwards that pull you into the story faster. But the big problem was I was writing mainly about her life in the 1920s and her life in the 1970s and there was a big gap in the middle. So finally, finally, I realized that it was meant to be a dual narrative um, going between one and the other. But um, instead of just... uh, jumping, you know, one chapter in the 20s and one in the 70s. I had them kind of sliding between the two a bit more. Um, And then the the opening that I chose, starting, you know, with Eve in a a hospital bed, is um, it made the novel more about memory. And I realised that that was the story I'd always wanted to tell. I'm looking for the emotional core, the thing that moves me about a story. And I thought, what if you'd been part of this amazing event but you couldn't really remember it very well. Anyway, I've got lots of extra material that I didn't use for this novel. <laughs> you know, All those all those other beginnings and bits that I wrote, I've got tons of words that never got used, but it's all practice, isn't it?
0: And it all helps you find the character in the story. I agree with you, absolutely. It's amazing. Some novels just flow, and some of them just sit there like nasty little lumps, you know? <laughs> You have to poke them mm. and prod them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. That's what I did. Yeah. So, um, where is Eve in that initial passage, um, that I read? What has happened to her?
1: Eve is in hospital after having a stroke. She's just come around and her husband's sitting beside her. And at first she can't remember who this man is. So she's conscious, but there is some neurological damage. And, um, This is something that I know about from personal experience because my mother died quite young of a massive um, hemorrhagic stroke. Then my aunt, my mother's much older sister, had a stroke at the age of 90 and absolutely fought her way back. She was quite incredible. And I've sort of based Eve a little bit on her in the novel that she was just absolutely determined she was going to speak again, she was going to walk again, she was going to get all her capacities back, and she did, she did at 90. But also, I was with a friend one night when he had a stroke and I didn't realize it at the time. And that's quite quite a scary thing. I thought he was very drunk, even though he's a person that I'd never seen drunk before. And um, it was only two days later, I mean, you know, I helped him to get home, it was only two days later, he went to hospital and they diagnosed it. And um, that really shook me up quite a lot because I thought I knew a lot about strokes, but it doesn't always follow the same pattern. So I've really educated myself since then about what to watch for, um, the recovery process. I support the Stroke Association in this country who do amazing research into stroke. And I also am part of a re- several research trials into brain health and so on. So yeah, that, that was, that's why the core of the novel I suppose, drifted in this direction for me because it is something I have this experience of. And then by chance, I found out my brother-in-law's sister um, is a physiotherapist who, when she was starting out, she used to work with stroke patients back in the 1970s. So she was able to tell me what Eve's treatment would have been like, what they'd have focused on. And of course, back back then, they didn't have soft tissue scanners, so they couldn't scan the brain and see what kind of stroke it was, whether it was a clot or a hemorrhage or a transient stroke, a TIA. Um, They just had to treat them all the same way and focus on rehabilitation. So yeah, Linda, Linda Jones, she was fantastic at looking through the first draft of the novel and telling me what, what would have happened in the 1970s.
0: And well, that was a real stroke of luck, because it would be hard to research that. Uh, even if you could get hold of the stuff, it would all be in medical language and really hard to understand. At the very end of the first chapter, which is told from the perspective, of, I hope I'm going to get this right, Sir Brograve Beecham, uh, who yes, is indeed, the, yeah. the old man of the opening paragraph and Eve's husband, as you mentioned, we encounter Violetta, Do- Dr. Anna Mansour. I'm assuming that she is a fictional character. Is that so? And what can you tell us about her?
1: Yes, Anna's fictional.
0: And I introduced her to bring a
1: sense of urgency to the story and also to represent a little bit the Egyptian point of view. Um, You know, when you think about it, it's just so unfair that in the past, all these colonial countries had come in and whisked whisked their treasures overseas. You know, France, um, the, Rosetta, the Rosetta Stone and all sorts of other things were taken by Napoleon's troops in 1798. And then Britain. And um, and when they discovered Tutankhamen, Carter and Carnarvon, just assumed that they were going to take loads of things back to, to Britain for the British Museum and um, for Lord Carnarvon's personal collection at Highclere Castle. Um, which... You know, it's it's clearly to us nowadays totally unfair. But of course in those days they thought, well, we've put they've put in the investment and the expertise to finding the, the the um antiquities. So it's their their right to take things. So Anna was sort of there for that point of view, but you know, also just a little bit of jeopardy, something to give a narrative curve and move the story forwards. A bit of time pressure. Eve has to remember something that she's going to tell Anna before before her memory goes completely.
0: Yes, it works very well. And of course, you know, they were colonialists, the people who found those tombs. I mean they just assumed yeah. that the British and the French could take better care of these things than the than the Egyptians and the other people whose heritage it happened to be. I mean, even the Greeks, right? They lost all those the Elgin marbles and so on. The structure of the book follows the 1970s Eve until she encounters a significant memory, and then we shift back to the past and see what happened at that point in her life, which I actually found very effective as a storytelling device because each, oh, thank you. each past um, adventure, for lack of a better word, uh, has a, a specific resonance in the present. Um, the shift happens first in Chapter 3, when a photograph of Luxor takes Eve back to November 1919 when she is 18 years old. So set the stage for us, please. What is she remembering?
1: So she's 18, but unlike 18-year-olds today, she'd led this incredibly sheltered life. She, she hadn't gone to school. She'd been taught at home by private tutors in Heitler Castle or other homes that the, the family had around the country. Um, I think she had been abroad to Paris for one shopping trip, but this was her first major foreign trip. And she arrived in Egypt. And I'm um, imagining from my own experience when I first arrived in Egypt that it's just so exotic you know the heat the different smells the different types of birds but most of all the colors you know it's this long strip of country it's you know the deep deep blue of the Nile which really is like sparkling sapphires it's incredibly blue and then there's the fertile strips of green date palms on either side. And beyond that, you can see the gold sand stretching off into the distance. So it's a country of green and gold and blue. And I can actually just conjure up these colours in my head now, remembering it. Absolutely stunning. Um, but also, this girl had had a lifelong passion for Egyptology. You know, she used to examine all the antiquities in her father's collection at High Clear and she'd memorised all the facts about him. And here, at last, she's in the heart of it. She's in Luxor, and um, they're just close to the Valley of the Kings where all the great Egyptian monarchs were entombed. So she must have been... I mean, she was already a girl of great enthusiasm for life and people. And um, here she was, actually about to visit the place that she'd, she'd known she'd learned so much about.
0: Here, too, we meet Howard Carter, whom you mentioned in passing before. I think for most listeners, he's probably just a name, you know, the man who discovered Tutankhamen's tomb. But to Eve, he was a friend. So tell us about him.
1: Howard was born in Suffolk in the UK, um, but he moved to Egypt in his late teens when he got a job drawing antiquities in tombs. He was a very skilled draftsman. And he'd stayed there more or less ever since, although coming back to the UK in the summer when it was too hot to dig out there, um i mean egyptology was just his entire life he was a total specialist totally devoted to it and incredibly perfectionist about his techniques um he had a bit of a brusque manner that meant he got into trouble with authority at times um and not not particularly diplomatic let's say but um yeah, yeah, he'd um, been sacked as director of antiquities out there after he threw some French visitors out of a tomb when they were behaving badly So t- towards the native people. So um, yeah, he had a bit of a reputation as being difficult. But uh, he had no romantic life that's ever been recorded in books. Um, there were whispers at Amongst colleagues that he might be a homosexual, but absolutely no evidence for this whatsoever, apart from the fact that he never married, so um it's probably just something that was said at that time if you weren't married.
0: yes, it probably was, and of course, it doesn't line up at all with the idea that he had an affair with Evelyn, so it's <laughs> no, I know <laughs> you kind of get to pick your rumor, I suppose. <laughs> On that trip uh, too, Eve meets Brograve for the first time, uh, it's a lovely story, although her mother is less impressed. Uh, how do they get together? And uh, do fill us in a bit. Well, you've already told us a little bit about Eve's personality, but um, it's so essential to the development of their relationship, especially in contrast to his.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, they're kind of opposites. I mean, she's chatty, friendly, outgoing, a real people person, and he's very quiet and reserved particularly at the period when she meets him in 1919, which is, you know, just after the war, a year after the end of the war, in which he's lost his older brother. And um, so he's quite reserved. Um, They met at a Christmas party at the British Embassy in Cairo. And this this is true. I mean, other aspects of their relationship I've invented, but um, we know this is true. And um, in my novel, he surprises himself by telling her about the death of his brother, which is something he didn't talk about much at the time. He had a lot of trouble talking about it, but she's full of empathy and they make a connection. But I think, well, certainly her mother doesn't approve because he's the son of a baron and that's not good enough for her daughter. Um, And uh, I think he considers her to be out of his reach. You know, she's an old daughter, she's pretty, she's lively, she's got loads of friends. And, and he's not very confident. And he thought, well, what on earth would a woman like that see in someone like me? So the relationship takes a while to get off the ground.
0: Well, especially since he's so shy, he's not exactly the kind of guy who's going to push it. Um, her parents are very interesting. Uh, she's very close to her father, whom she calls Pups. Uh, how would you describe him as a character in your novel? Not necessarily. I mean, it, it, you can talk about the historical person as well, but it's got to be your interpretation of him in the novel.
1: Well actually at the time it was said that, that PG Wood has based the character of Bertie Wooster on the fifth earl of Carnarvon, He's Seriously? a real man's man, I
0: yeah. Didn't know He's that.
1: A real man's man. He was into motor cars and shooting and horse racing and gambling and photography as well. So before the war, he used to spend a lot of his time motoring around Europe with an old school friend called um, Indian school friend, Prince Victor Dulik Singh, who died in 1919. Um, he married Eve's mother for the money, not for love. He married her for her dowry because he was immensely proud of his family heritage, you know, the estate. And these estates were taking more and more money to maintain particularly as the government started taxing them and so there was a whole spate of aristocrats marrying American millionaires daughters and anybody that could bring some money in to prop up the property and um, lo and behold Almina had money from her Rothschild connections and that's why they married but it was definitely not a love match so he was always off with his friends doing his man things. He had um, an Egyptian collection at Highclere which Howard Carter had helped him to build and um, Eve was very much a daddy's girl. She loved hanging out going through the Egy- Egyptian artifacts with him and spending time with him whenever he was around. So. Yeah, she was absolutely devoted to her pups. Um, And, you know, in inventing her character, I've got a few quotes about her from different people. Um, Somebody called her a magnificent girl, full of pluck and common sense and devoted to her father. And another source told me that she was slangy, which a lot of people were in the 1920s. You know, they really... um, and and lots of endearments as well. So there was a letter that she wrote to Howard Carter once, which she said, you know, and she's very gushy in it. And that's the evidence I think that people sometimes use for saying that they'd had an affair. But she was just a gushy type.
0: <laughs> she was. Um, she met Carter through her father. So how did her father get involved in Egyptology? He'd had um, a bad car accident. In
1: nineteen o nine I think, which damaged his chest, and um he was told not to spend winters in Britain anymore. So he went out to Egypt, where the heat and um, to spend the winters there and and just looking for looking around for something to do, he immediately became interested in in the great Egyptian culture. he did he had a few digs of his own before before he met Howard Carter, he'd been on a few digs of his own, but he wasn't knowledgeable enough, so Howard Carter brought in the the real specialist knowledge that helped him to have make successful finds.
0: Um, Eve's mother, Almina, you mentioned that she was a Rothschild. Um, but she's a fascinating character, I think. Um, tell us a bit about her, her story. Almina was
1: extraordinary. Um, she probably was a total nightmare as a mother, but um, she was just a huge bundle of energy, a tiny woman. Eve was tiny as well. And that's another thing about Eve and Brograve's relationship is that she was about five foot one and he's about six foot four so they look hilarious together but um almina was tiny as well and full of energy she's actually the illegitimate daughter of alfred de rothschild um but he um gave her a massive dowry when she married the earl of Carnarvon, and he also gave her an inheritance including a magnificent house on park lane in london um seymour place just It doesn't exist anymore, but uh, it was extraordinary. I've seen photos of it. So she was a a really driven woman. She got involved in political campaigns. During the First World War, she ran a hospital for soldiers at Highclere Castle, where she treated them like honoured guests, serving sherry at four o'clock, you know, that kind of thing. And then she took her hospital to London and carried it on after the war, um, treating the her upper class friends, and then usually forgetting to build them. It wasn't a profit making endeavour. And she threw. She was famous for her parties, lavish parties at both Seymour Place and at Highclere. So she was a woman of strong opinions and tons of energy, but um, a difficult mother. Now I say that because she did fall out with her son after the Earl of Carnarvon died. Um, he, her son ended up bankrupting her later um, because of her profligacy. And she, she took out a really ill-advised lawsuit in 1925, quite notorious at the time, against the first wife of a man that she'd just married. It was just the stupidest thing to do. But Eve was such a, peep, you know, Eve got on sure She got on with her mother right through her life. And they used to have tea at the Ritz together regularly and talk on the phone.
0: Eve seems to have been good at getting along with people. She
1: was. I think she definitely was, yeah.
0: We're skipping forward a bit now in time, terms of the book. Um, do talk about how Eve came to be the first person to enter Tutankhamun's to tomb. What was that experience like for her?
1: So, Howard Carter had found a doorway and then he telegrammed Lord Carnarvon and Eve to travel out to Egypt so that they could be there for the opening. And they. um. When they arrived, they unpacked that doorway and behind it, they found a corridor with lots of stones. So they pulled that away and there were various seals. They could tell it was a royal tomb and they could tell that it hadn't been disturbed. So that was um, what they should have done at that stage is close it up and wait for Egyptian officials to come along and be present for the opening because that was the rules, the concession that they'd they'd got to allow them to dig in the Valley of the Kings. But it's now known that instead of just going home to wait for the officials to arrive from Cairo, the three of them sneaked back at night and broke through into the, first of all, into the antechamber, which was almost, it looked almost like a furniture repository because it had lots of things all piled up. You know, uh, Egyptians left things in their tombs that it was thought that they would need in the afterlife. So there's a carriage, there's a boat, there's lots of food, um, there's furniture, beautiful gold animal couches. They're absolutely gorgeous, actually. I wouldn't mind one of them from my home. Um, and they also, it is said, broke through into the burial chamber and saw this great big shrine with the seals intact on it. And it was then when he saw the seals that Howard Carter knew that he'd got. To in common up till then, there were various different names on things, and he wasn 't entirely sure, but then he knew so it said that Eve went inside first, crawled through the hole because she was the smallest, and I thought to myself i 'm not sure I would have had the courage in her place. You'd, I mean what was she going to find inside i'd be i don 't know i 'd be worried about snakes or insects or poison or fumes. Um, but instead you know she did go in and uh, she said it was hotter than the hottest turkish bath inside and there was a strong smell of incense this is incredible that the scent, scented oils the egyptians used the unguents had kept their smell after three over 3000 years i can't keep perfume on for 5 minutes and <laughs> that had that had stuck but um they were, they, all swore, they were all sworn to secrecy that night because it would have been very politically damaging if the Egyptians had found out that they had broken in. But she told her Uncle Mervyn, who was a British diplomat out there, about it. And she said to him it was the greatest moment of her life. And he recorded it in his diary, which became public after his death. So the story was out. <laughs>
0: it's a great story. And she walks out with a solid gold jar, which is how Anna Mansour gets into the story. And uh, that also leads into another running theme, which is the curse of Totankhamen. Now, no novelist worth her salt could avoid that, <laughs> bringing that in. But what role does it play in your book? Uh, what makes it more than a journalistic cliche, if anything does?
1: I wasn't especially interested in writing about the supernatural, but I couldn't leave out the curse because it's so much a part of what people think of about the tomb, and also because there was a strong belief in it at the time. I mean, Eve herself, wasn't entirely sure either way. Um, there's a newspaper story in which Eve told the journalist that when the story about the curse came out, and you know her, her father died four months after the opening of the tomb from this random infected mosquito bite, which just seemed such a crazy way to die. Um, and she told this newspaper that she offered to release Brograve from their inca- engagement in case the curse would affect him if he married her. And instead, he said that if it were true, she needed him around to protect her. So he wanted the marriage to go ahead. But they really did think it was a strong possibility. Um, Spiritualism had, you know, we think of it as very much a Victorian thing, the seances and the table lifting and whatever. But there was a huge resurgence during the war when people had suffered so much loss. And, And, you know, establishment figures like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle were speaking out on about spiritualism. And there's this Society for Psychical Research, which I have e visiting and which I have in fact visited myself. <laughs> um, but we can look back now as historians and see that it was the press spreading the rumours. What had happened was that um, Lord Carnarvon had sold exclusive access to the tomb to the Times in London in order to help finance the excavation. And this is an enormously unpopular move, as you can imagine. All the rival British papers and American papers weren't getting first dibs on the story, but also the Egyptians were furious. This is a story happening on their own soil, and Lord Carnarvon has said, Nope, sorry, the Times is getting it. Anyway, a journalist called Arthur Weigel of the Daily Mail seems to be, a, be the one that's revived this curse story and and the minute it started, you know, Tutankhamun was a huge story in the press anyway, and they were looking for ways to keep it keep it on the front pages. And so the, the curse story was some people speculated that it might be a rare kind of fungus inside the tomb or back droppings or some some kind of oils, because there were there did seem to be an odd number of deaths and not just ordinary deaths, strange deaths, people being shot or Poisoned or unexpectedly catching pneumonia, or um, one um, scientist, Egyptologist, committed suicide saying that he was under the influence of a curse. And um, so journalists are out hunting for these stories. Every time somebody died that had been anywhere near the tomb, it made front pages again. But in fact, if you look back at it, only six out of the 26 people who were there at the official opening of the tomb, had died within the next decade. Given their, given their age group, there was actually pretty good percentage, really. So, I mean, I've kind of left it open for readers if they come to this and they do have some belief in this direction, then it can be read, that the story can be read that way or whichever, you know, whichever way they want to take it.
0: What would you like people to take away from the collector's daughter?
1: I'd say, first of all, you know, the huge excitement around the discovery of the tomb. I mean, it went... The story just went worldwide really quickly because of um, technological um, progress in telegram, radio and print technology. And it really was huge. It influenced art and design and fashion and and was so talked about. Um, And my story is told from the British point of view, but I hope to give a bit of a sense of how unfair it was that this newly independent Egypt was threatened with having its 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 great find, you know Tutankhamun's treasures whisked off, offshore unfortunately they managed to avoid that um, i think there's also i hope there's also a sense of the way how rapidly women's lives were changing in the 1920s the upper class ones you know before the war they were still having to be with chaperones and and after the war, they're going out on their own and having wild parties and drinking and smoking and choosing their own husbands, some of them even having careers out of marriage. So Eve was very much on the cusp of that. She wasn't one of the wild ones in the 1920s set in London, but uh, she was having a lot more freedom than she would have had before the war. But my final thing really is that the emotional core of the book about, about memory and you know what happens to... How does it change a relationship when someone you love loses part of their memory and their cognitive faculties? Are they still the same person when they can't remember your shared past? And this is some, you know, something that's personal to me. I've watched this happen. and And for me, it's the emotional core of the book, I suppose.
0: It is so, the yeah, emotional that's... core, yes. We didn't really get to talking about their marriage, but it is a wonderful marriage. I mean, that was actually the as much as I love ancient Egypt, um, I was you know crazy about it when I was 13, 14, 15. I wanted to read every book on it. But um, I still, what I really re- connected to emotionally was, was the marriage between Evelyn and Brogare. Bro- Boke, <laughs> I'm sorry. Brograve. Brograve. <laughs> I don't, it's such no. a strange name. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> a
1: very odd name, yeah. And
0: it's fallen out of fashion, strangely. <laughs> strangely. <laughs> This book will be published in September. Um actually we're talking like a couple of weeks before it comes out. Um but are you already working on something new? I've actually
1: delivered my next book for oh, congratulations. No, August 2022 and I've done the edits on that. That's a that's New York in the nineteen twenties. It's a kind of sex in the city set in in um in that era, the Prohibition era, and I absolutely love doing it. It's about four women who were friends there. And, um, yeah, I'm just starting my research for the next one. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm on, I'm, I'm on a, a book a year schedule at the moment, which is quite punishing, but I do love it.
0: Well, you're, you're doing a great job with it. So thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Jill. It's been a great oh, pleasure talking you. with you. Thank you so much, Carolyn. And thank you for listening to our podcast once again. I'm CP Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Jill Paul about The Collector's Daughter. You can find out more about Jill and her books at jillpaul.com. That's G-I-L-L-P-A-U-L as one word. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at NewBooksHistFic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.